Well, I've really been encouraged by some of the feedback I've received from you all about this study. Sometimes, as a pastor, especially a pastor that teaches the gospel clearly and often, there can be this temptation that creeps up, and I'll tell you how it happens. There's a temptation that you're not teaching enough. You're not teaching the deeper things of God. And there is a whole community, and they're not even people that are online. There's just a whole community of people that are content with studying God's Word. And there's no problem with that. There's no problem in studying God's Word. Where the issue comes up is if that's the only thing you do. We as believers are commanded to go and demonstrate our faith, demonstrate what we believe, to take the things that we've learned and seen, and received, and then go and do them. It's two small letters. It's a little word, do. But that is the entire Christian life. Go and do. But the temptation that comes up is to teach the deeper things of God, to go and teach things that are brand new, that are new ideas, never before heard. And it's a temptation to dive into illustrations to dive into storytelling, to dive into applications that become a further and further stretch from the real context of the truth. I'm thankful that many of you who are here at Calvary Community Church have not grown tired of the gospel. You have not grown tired of teaching and preaching, and not just from myself, but from all of our leaders here. You have not grown tired to the good news that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sin. And that Anyone, anybody who simply places their trust in him receives immediately at that moment eternal life. I'm glad that that's not a bore to you. And if it is, I understand how that can happen. Here's how that happens. You get out of touch with lost people. It's very easy to start looking at our fellow brother and sister in Christ and preferring them over the lost person. We all care for one another. We all love one another. We spend time with one another. And when we fellowship, it's sweet. It's good. But then we look at the world who is increasingly becoming more and more anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-anything correct. And we say, how am I supposed to reach anybody out there? And so you begin to draw away from those people. But we forget the words of Jesus that God so loved the world and everybody in it. And not in a way like, oh, ushy-gushy love, you know, I love you so much. Not like that. The God so loved statement there in John 3.16 means God loved the world in this way. In what way did God demonstrate his love toward us? Romans 5.8 tells us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we should not get tired of that. We begin to tire of it, and we begin to hate the people that are still lost when we lose sight of how we were saved to begin with. It doesn't matter how much of a sinner you were before you put your trust in Christ. Your sin separated you from God. And there are still people who I'm thinking of, I'm looking out that window right now, and I'm seeing all these cars go by. People that I'll probably never meet, never have an opportunity to speak with one-on-one, and I have no idea where they're going to go when they die. Not a clue. But I have what they need. I have what they need. And so I want to tell them what they need. Regardless of what the response is, we need to tell people what they need. People don't need a new way of life. People don't need a new set of rules and regulations. People need Jesus Christ. They need a Savior. And when they put their trust in Jesus Christ, All of their problems are solved. They've still got a horrible, rotten, sinful nature that they've got to deal with. And through good teaching and preaching and good pastoral ministry and brother and sister in Christ coming together to help those that are not yet where they are, they can accomplish those things. But what they need the most is they need Jesus Christ. And how does the devil mess this up? Well, he gets in your brain and he says, you've heard this. You've heard this. You keep hearing this. Uh, Maybe they're not so smart. Maybe there's something deeper that you need to understand. That's how we get to redefining words. 
In this study, and we're going to conclude it uh, this morning by looking at two major passages, but you've seen in this study how a simple word like faith has been twisted only to meet the standards of a certain type of biblical theology. It's called Reformed. It's called the Reformation. More like today, it is in Lordship, Salvation, and Calvinism. And they've redefined just one word, they've added one condition to it, that if a person really has placed their assurance or confidence in Jesus Christ, then a full, completed assurance and confidence will be manifested in their actions. And they use the two passages that we'll look at today to try and prove the word that you see on the screen here, spurious. Spurious, what does that mean? Empty, vain, with no value. There are only two kinds of faith. The faith that saves and the faith that does not save. The faith that saves is where the object is Jesus Christ. The non-saving faith is demonstrated every single day by the lost person. How? How does that happen? Well, let's say you're an atheist. You have assurance or confidence, that's the definition, in a stated or implied truth. What is the atheist's faith? They are putting their assurance or confidence in the stated or implied truth that there is no God. And they believe that. You can't tell them that, or they cannot tell you that, oh, I don't have faith. Yes, you do. Faith is not just a Christian thing. Faith is a basic exercise of humanity. The person who worships Buddha has their faith, their assurance or confidence, in the stated and implied truths of all the teachings of Buddha. They have decided that the the object of their faith is going to be the teachings in Buddhism. They have faith. Will that faith save them from the consequences that come by not having a sin payment applied to their account? No. So that's a non-saving faith. But the Reformation, Reformed theology, Calvinism, Lordship, Salvation adds that a believer can have, listen to me now, the same kind of non-saving faith that the atheist or the Buddhist has. And you may say, okay, how? And they add a third definition, which is to say there has to be a, a, a voluntary submission of the will in order to really believe. We're going to look at a specific case study in the book of Acts today that I believe proves a believer can have incorrect understandings about God after they've put their trust in Jesus Christ and they're still saved, but they've come across grievous error and there's punishment waiting for them. But in no case can we see in the study we'll look at today, this person's faith being spurious or hollow or void. Then we'll look in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll look at that story about the good tree and the bad tree, the production of evil fruit and good fruit. We'll look at what the context is there, which informs Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. As we're coming into a full understanding of this study, what I want you to take away from this is saving faith is the faith whose object is Jesus Christ. That's what saves a person. Whatever that person chooses to do with the life they've been given after salvation, they will stand before God, not you and me. They will stand before Jesus Christ, and they will give an account as to the things that were profitless and profitable. I am not the judge of your life. And this is what happens, folks. People get on... Look, I'm, I'm in an elevated position here, but I hope you understand that's not because I feel like I am over you. But there are pastors who will stand in a pulpit like this and lord their idea of righteousness over their people. And they will make salvation hard to attain because they're not satisfied with the fact that people are still sinners. And they've somehow clouded their mind from the fact that they are still a sinner. Hello. They forget. Trent did an excellent job this past Wednesday, and and I I really encourage you to go back and watch it. And from the fact of the title alone, it grabs a bunch of traction on YouTube. Why? Because a title like, Can a Believer 
still sin or can a believer live in sin, that people gravitate towards that because there are the people who think they don't sin as much. And then there's those who are still struggling with sin who are getting beaten down by the ones who say, well, I'm not sinning as bad as you, so you better watch out. Here comes this club of self-righteousness. I, I, I mean, they can't even catch themselves. It gains so much traction. Why? Because people are trying to figure this out. Because there's a bunch of teaching out there that says, if you still sin, then you were never really saved. How do we get to this point? How does this end up happening? People twist what God has clearly said. It's a good place to start because it's the thing that we see proved out the most. Now, we're going to go to two passages before our main passage. So I want you to just be reminded here in Acts chapter 13, this is on page 1167 in a church by a Bible in the pew there. Or if you have a Schofield Bible, it's there too. Paul's teaching here, he's continuing to go to synagogues. His theme is justification, a declaration of correct standing before God, justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he makes this statement here in verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. We all need the forgiveness of our sins. And we need a forgiveness that covers all of them, folks. Amen? And that is only available in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But it is available, praise God, it's available to anybody, Jew or Gentile. 39 says, and by him, who is him here? That's Jesus. 37, God raised again, he saw no corruption. This man, Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. So that's the, that's the proof text here. That's the filter in which we need to understand these next couple of things that we look at. I want you to go to Acts chapter 5 now. This is a little bit before that message that you, that snippet that you just heard from Paul. And in Acts chapter 5, we have a pretty uh, jarring story here. It's not our main study, but it is going to be helpful when we look at our main study here. We've got Ananias and Sapphira. They have a little bit of a problem. They kept back the truth. You know what it means to keep back the truth? It means to lie. And I think I have heard a lot of people use Revelation 21, 27, and, and they'll, they'll focus on the fact uh, anyone that works in abomination, right? They're not going to get into heaven. But it's so interesting, and I think it's interesting because God designed it this way, that in Revelation 21, 27, it says, Whosoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. And I've always been struck by something I heard a long time ago that in order to get to working an abomination, you've got to learn how to lie. And no, folks, there is no, no such thing as a little innocent white lie. It's, you know, it's just a little thing. It's corruption of the truth. You know, that's how the devil twisted Eve's mind. No, there's something you're missing, Eve. There's, there's more that you can understand here. Go ahead and do what God said not to do. He's hiding something from you. You're not going to die physically, but they died spiritually. That's how the devil does it, folks. A little twist here, a little twist there, and then he presents it as a well-cooked meal, and we eat it up. We don't realize that we've just taken in false doctrine, twisting the truth. Ananias and Sapphira, they struggle with their tongue. They struggle with lying. The church is growing in Jerusalem here. Many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, people are starting to come together and really build a community, so to speak, kind of like a big church. They're selling their property. They're selling the things that they have, coming together willfully. The apostles are not teaching them to do this, but they, they are so radically changed by this good news of Jesus Christ that all my sins are paid, that they are abandoning the way that they used to live so that they can continue to tell more people about this. And we are in the, 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 the high day of the new church here. What do I mean by the high day? The persecution hadn't happened yet. They were making people upset. The religious leaders were angry and had brought the apostles to them and said, stop teaching in this name. You know, you know why that was? Because a lot of common teachings in Jerusalem, it was a, it was a rabbi style of teaching, which meant you don't just go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. You live your entire life 
in dedication to that rabbi. You listen to what they teach, you dress like they do, you talk like they do, you memorize what they say. I've been to Israel twice, and I've seen this with my own eyes. It's amazing to me. It's a total death of self and life unto their teacher. And that's why Jesus was a threat, because he had the same similar following. People were following him, they're listening to him, and he was teaching against the other teachers, and they didn't like that. So they sought in their own counsels darkly, we're going to slay him. And that's exactly what they did. They got the entire people against Jesus, and of course you know how that story went. But now he's, re- he's risen from the dead, he's ascended, the Holy Spirit's come down, and people are getting saved. They're getting baptized to show what they believe. The Holy Spirit is coming on to people and staying in them. And then we have this story here in verse 1 of, of uh, Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And you understand how this relates because of verse 32 through 37 in the fourth chapter. They're selling all their things. They're coming together, collecting the money, getting things in common. But verse 2, he, he messed up and kept back part of the price His wife, also being privy to it, she knew that he was going to say it sold for this much, but it really sold for more, so he kept back a portion of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Specifically, Peter is in view here, the apostle who received this donation from Ananias. But Peter said, Ananias, why have, and I want you to mark this here, Satan filled thine heart. Why is this important? Because Satan is the father of all lies. There is no good in him, folks. Zero. You come tonight and hear what we're going to talk about, I think it'll blow your mind. That's all I'm going to say about that. And if you'd like to find out, 6 o'clock. Satan filled thine heart to what? Lie to who? The Holy Ghost, wait a second though, wait a second. Was he giving an offering to the Holy Ghost? I thought he was giving it to this new thing that they were doing. No, he lied to the Holy Ghost because Peter and the apostles were filled with that Holy Ghost. Folks, when you lie to another person who's saved by grace, you lie to God. We cannot get around that, nor should we. We should practice what Jesus said. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, then go and do it. If you're pressed to tell the truth and it's an inconvenient thing for you to tell it, go ahead and tell it. Be a truthful person. I believe that Ananias and Sapphira, they're people who understood the gospel. They received the teachings. I am surmising that they believed on Jesus Christ. They still had a problem with sin. Oh, well, it could have been so much worse, you know? Yeah, but it already was pretty bad. We cannot categorize our sin in this way. And he says, and to keep back part of the price of the land, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? And hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? But thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. What's Peter saying here? Nobody pressured you to do this. Zero pressure. Peter wasn't standing there like, oh, you know, he's at the bank, you know. He's not going to the bank with him like, okay, tell them to get it out of the checking account ending in 0289. Do it. No pressure. Ananias made this choice on his own, and he didn't just lie to God's people. He lied to God. There's a serious price that was paid. Verse 5. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down. Now, this doesn't mean he's tired. He's had a long week. We know what kind of falling down he experienced and gave up the ghost. Folks, you only do that once. (laughs) You don't come back from that. He died. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, three hours after this had happened, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. 
And Peter answered unto her. I don't even know if he said, hey, how you doing? Definitely didn't say, I'm sorry for your loss. He straight asked her the truth. Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. For so much, according to the context, is informed back in verse 2. They kept a certain part and held a part back. What happened to her? Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. I don't even know if she had time to understand what was just said, but she checked out too. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Now this is Jerusalem. You've got, I would say, two believers who lied and paid a heavy price for it. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, after we have a description of the judgment seat of Christ, we are educated that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And those who destroy, excuse me, that destroy this temple, this body with sin, it's not going to it should not be a surprise that they are destroyed by the Lord. Now people will read in eternal destruction here, but that's not the case. The Holy Spirit is our seal. We have a new nature which is born of God and can't sin. However, we can bring heavy and costly judgment upon ourselves now. This is the case with Ananias and Sapphira. I want you to focus on verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church. Everyone who's a part of this new body, those who have put their trust on Jesus Christ, they recognized these things with Ananias and Sapphira. They remembered them. And anybody else who heard them, now we don't know if the people that heard about these were saved or lost. There's a good chance lost people heard about this story. And there was fear. There was fear. That the apostles, they had power. And that God would take somebody for something as simple and well accepted as a lie. Now we go to Acts chapter 8. And that's where our focus is. Acts chapter 8, we looked at the last part of this chapter a few weeks ago specifically about the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, what he believed, and that there was no time between Philip's witnessing of Jesus Christ to him and the Ethiopian's belief, there was no time of testing or proving to see if he really believed or if he backed it up with works for Philip to baptize him immediately. Philip says, what prevents us from doing this? Nothing. Why? Because he's believed unto eternal life. He got saved. Let's baptize him. Before this happened, Philip with others, Peter is also going to be a recurring theme in this story. They're now in Samaria. Samaria is a very interesting place. A not, uh, it's not a friendly place. It is where the Jew and Gentile have come together in marriage, they've had children, and they're considered by the Jews to be unclean. A lot of racial tension here. You want to talk about racism and difficulty between people culturally? Study this uh, rift between Jewish-born and Sumerian-born. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he was in Samaria. And, and, and if you look at the map, there was an easier way for him to get where he was going, but the Scripture says he must needs go through Samaria. Why do you think he had to go through there? Because the gospel's for anybody that believes. doesn't matter what color your skin is, what language you speak. If you're a sinner, you have the opportunity to receive God's grace. Amen? Boy, that's the solution for racism today. I remember when all that was happening in 2020, and it's only gotten worse, folks. It's only gotten worse. I remember when all that was happening in 2020 with the riots and cities were burning, and Dr. Arnold was on a trip, and I sat in at WTBN, and I, I told the listeners that, you know, the solution here is not the end of racism. That's not going to happen. Why? Because we're all sinners. People have problems. What's the solution? People need Jesus Christ. 
You learn to love one another when you learn from an example that Jesus has given us. He died for us. We should be willing to die for those. Even though they may never believe, we serve God. Amen? We're accountable to Him. So Samaria is a hotbed for some issues. And in John 4, Jesus goes there and He leads this woman to Christ. She runs back. She tells the men. They come back and they say, we have believed not because of your report, but we have heard what He said and believe that He is the Christ the Savior of the world. Such an interesting statement early on in John's Gospel. That was enough for them to be saved. Amen? They believed. They received eternal life. And now here we are. We're back in Samaria. After Jesus has ascended and his apostles are teaching, look in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. This is dark magic. This is demonic stuff. And he bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. I can't tell you where I saw this, only that I did see it. I don't remember where I saw it. But it was somebody talking with, I want to say it was either Michael Knowles or Ben Shapiro. But it was this medium that had converted to faith in Jesus Christ, telling you about her experience as a medium. And she said very clearly, Nobody from the dead communicates with anybody on this side, period. Every single communication that I received, I either fabricated it or I received it from demons. Folks, you need to ingest that. You need to understand that that's not truth because she said it. That's truth because of the parable that we see where the rich man is in hell and he begs for somebody to tell his brothers so that, he is, that they do not end up where he's at. What is the response from Abraham, they wouldn't believe if someone raised from the dead. But so many people are rushing to psychics. They're flipping their hands over. They're asking for some kind of knowledge that the Bible's already clearly given to us. But this man, he's a sorcerer. This man named Simon, and he was a very good one. He's bewitched a lot of people. That's not, a good, it's not something that you want on your resume. Hardworking, talented, proficient in Excel, able to bewitch in sorcery. You don't just you don't want that. It's not a good thing. This is not a good man. He's doing things that are satanic, demonic in an area that's rife with it. Uh, verse 10. To whom they all gave heed. They yielded to this guy when he would talk. From the least to the greatest saying, this man is the great power of God, not relevant to our study, but look at how people understand magic and witchcraft oh it's it's from god boy deception 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 verse 11 and to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries so obviously this guy he's very talented he's been doing it for a long time people he's a staple in the community that's simon the sorcerer you got a problem you go to him the least of us to the greatest of us we all submit to him But, ooh, this is nice, verse 12. When they, please please circle this. When they what, church? Believed. Now hang on a second. They had believed Simon the sorcerer. They were bewitched by his tricks. They were ensnared by his esoteric practices. So obviously... These people have believed in something that did not yield eternal life, but now we're going to get some clarity on what they believed now. Look at what it says. Philip, when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, the Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now stop here for a moment. Remember how we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Ethiopian eunuch who believed and then was baptized? He's not the first case, folks. Philip was in Samaria before he went to the Ethiopian eunuch. And in Samaria, he did the same thing that he did for the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is definitely not Jewish. He's definitely not of Samaria. He's a Gentile. He's actually royalty, as the Scripture tells us. The same message for him as for you, as for all of them back in that time. You believe on Jesus Christ, you'll get to the kingdom of God. Why? 
Because you're going to strive until the end? No, you've got eternal life now. They believe this message. And as a result, Philip baptized them. I don't think Philip baptized people that had not really, truly understood and believed by their, as evidenced by their works. They believed, he baptized them. And obviously there's enough discernment with these men. Deacon is, or excuse me, Philip is a deacon. Obviously there's enough discernment from what we saw with the story of Ananias and Sapphira that people can tell when they're being lied to. So I don't think that Philip baptized anybody who was not genuinely saved. What do I mean by genuinely saved? They had saving faith, which the object was Jesus Christ. Are you with me? This is good news. Woo! Because when you believed, you're saved. I love baptizing people. Those of you who have been baptized by me, I love to just talk to you for a moment. And I, I one-on-one, I say, have you believed on Jesus Christ that his death, burial, and resurrection has paid for all your sin? And people will look at me, and with tears in their eyes, they say yes. And they say, is there anything you could do between this moment and the day you die in which you could lose your salvation? And they say no. And then I get to turn to the crowd, and I get to say, based on the profession of this brother or sister in Christ, they have put their trust in Jesus Christ, and I now baptize them as the Lord commands me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's an exciting moment. Why? Because I know they believe And that regardless of what happens after this and this, they'll be in heaven. And I say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk again in newness of life. And some people bury their head in their hands and other people shoot their hands up into the air. Whatever they do, praise God that another person has publicly confessed what they have believed. That's a good day. That's a good thing. Simon's doing this. Excuse me. Philip is doing this. Simon hears it. The people who he had enslaved with their practice, they hear these things. 13 is a great verse. A testimony of God's power and ability to cut through all the tricks and deception and silliness and get right to the moment, right to the heart of it. What's it say in 13? Then Simon himself, what? Praise God. He's a really, really, really baby Christian, but praise God, he is a child of God. How do we know that he believed unto eternal life? Philip baptized him. This is very important because everything that we're going to look at now, Simon the sorcerer messed up. And a lot of Calvinists, lordship salvationists, will go to this passage and say, see, he believed, but his faith was spurious because he acted this way after he got saved. Look at what this says. Then Simon himself believed also. Remember the text we opened with, Acts 13, 38, and 39? Did he do what Paul said brought about eternal life? Yes. He was justified from all things, even the horrible thing he was about to do next. Justified. Folks, if it's true of Simon the sorcerer, it's true of me and you. And praise God for it. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip. What does it mean by continued? He followed after him, listened, and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So here comes Peter and John. They're they're going to Samaria. People are trusting Christ. It's a great thing. The central location of the church, which has just been persecuted, mind you, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, another deacon, died. Saul, who later became Paul, was there. Saul is speaking against the church. We see that in the beginning of chapter 8. They're going through, and Peter and John are now there, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. At this time, a person believed, they're born again, they've got that new nature, But the Holy Spirit was being rolled out because Jesus said that there were certain things that were going to accompany his apostles as a proof that they were of him. Not only in what they said, but there were things that were going to be done. For example, Paul getting bitten by that snake and not dying. That that does not mean that we're supposed to get a poisonous snake up here and test if I'm really saved. That's That's a sign for that time. And at this time, 
When baptism occurred, people received the Holy Spirit, and when they had the hands laid on them, that happened. We don't do that today because Paul has educated us in Ephesians 1.13 that immediately upon belief, immediately we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Done. We have progressive revelation about that. But they're coming down now to give people out the Holy Ghost. So they're doing that, 16. Look at 16. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they uh, were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they believe they will receive the Holy Spirit. There was a way that that was going to happen. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, please mark this here. This is his sin. His sin here is what you call summarized. It will be explained in great detail in the coming verses. But his sin is this. He offered them money. Now, contextually, what is being said here is that Simon saw what Peter and John were doing. He coveted that gift, which was for the apostles. And he thought, I'm going to try and buy it off of them. Why do you think this was attractive to someone like Simon the sorcerer? It was power. He had power over the people. And so he saw that power. And even though he's saved, he still has sin. He wants to covet that for himself. I want it for myself. So then, in verse 19, we have what he says. The sin originated in his mind. I want to buy that. He says, give, uh, verse 19, saying, Giving, uh, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. So we know the reason why Simon wants to do this is he coveted it for himself. We don't know that yet, but that's what we're going to find out. But when Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. What's the problem here with Simon the sorcerer? He thinks that he can get something that God gives out of his sovereignty. This is what is so dangerous about the signs and wonders movement of today. It's still happening, folks, where people get in a sanctuary like this, and by the end of the service, people are running around. If you're ever in a service like that, take yourself out. This is a great time to say, may I use the bathroom? And you just exit out those doors. But there are people who will come up on a stage like this, They'll slap people on the forehead. They'll fall on the floor with a thunderous boom, and all of a sudden they're healed now. You can't buy that stuff. And you come to find out that many of these people that have these miraculous healings, they're actors, they're stage people. They're not really getting saved. So what's the whole point of it? To deceive you. So you pull out this. You know what's in here? Well, folks, nothing. Please pray for that. But you know what's in here? Money. Oh, we've got cards, we've got limits, we got all that. Oh, I want that. The love of money is the root of all evil, folks. Still true today. Doesn't mean money's bad, but people, they covet it, they want it, and they'll deceive you in any way. And sadly, our buddy Simon here, Simon the sorcerer, he coveted it in this way. Doesn't nullify his salvation, but he has a serious misunderstanding of the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter said unto him, verse 20, we'll read this again, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. What matter does Simon the sorcerer have neither part nor lot? How the Holy Spirit is given. God said it was going to be given a certain way. Simon contends and says, I want to buy it. And Peter says, no, you should perish with your money. That's how serious this was. It'd be better if you go ahead and just, you died. We may say, wow, that's really insensitive. No, I think it's accurate. He's trying to take God's miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit and make it into some magic show. It's not what it is. And that's the thing that he has neither part nor lot in. It's not about his salvation. You don't get to decide, Simon the sorcerer, how the Holy Spirit is rolled out. Then what he says this, uh, then what he says is this, the middle of 21, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
the way you're thinking, Simon the sorcerer, it is not right with what God has said. Then he says in 22, repent therefore of this thy wickedness. You can't get more detailed than this, folks. Luke has the cleanest Greek in the New Testament. And what is being said here is the thing that Simon the sorcerer has to change his mind about is not how he stands before God justified. It has nothing to do with what he believes about Jesus Christ. He's got to change his mind that he can buy with filthy lucre, with a covetous heart, the Holy Spirit as a gift for himself. Change your mind about that. But people will look at this because it says repent, because the word believe is at the top. They will look at it and say, see, his faith was not yet completed. He wouldn't have been baptized. What was his problem? His problem was an incorrect idea about the gifts that God was bestowing. You don't have any involvement in that. You think you can buy it? That's a really bad idea. You'd better change your mind about that because you're not in a good standing with God. Folks, these two words, I want you to pay attention to them. Positional, conditional. My position between myself and God, I'm justified. That's where I stand. My condition can be poor because of sin in my life. I can be a disobedient child. I can express my own will. And what will that bring from my heavenly Father? Chastening, rebuke, discipline. There are people that think, oh no, God would never do that because He loves us. Folks, it's because He loves us that He will do that. You know, we've got a little daughter. She's learning all these things with her body. Okay? Like when she's on the changing table, which is getting way too small. When she's on the changing table, and she'll go, ooh, I'm a, I'm a python. I can twist. And all of a sudden now, the diaper change that is already of a very hard degree of skill is now multiplied in difficulty because she wants to roll around. And you can give her all the toys in the world. It, it works for about a second, and I can't change a diaper that fast. She rolls around and all these things. I have something I want her to do. She wants to do something differently, and so she does it. Is there a consequence if I, as the <clears throat> loving father, just let's let her do what she wants to do, and she rolls off the changing table onto the floor? Is that really loving her? Oh, well, don't restrain her. You know that? Yeah. I go, hang on a sec, and every time I do that, and I'm not, I'm not doing anything forceful, it's just, I'm, I'm talking about just a little correction. You know what happens? Just, where did that come from? And folks, they're real. The tears are real. That used to get me early on, you know? Because, you know, she would cry because she's hungry and all that. But then as soon as the real tears came out, it was like, what do I need to do right now to make this stop? But now it's like, and the Academy Award goes to, you know? (laughs) She's got a will, and I have to make sure that even though it's against her will, I've got to, hey, stay here, don't roll around, because she could hurt herself. It's the same thing that God is doing here through Peter to Simon the sorcerer. Stop from this behavior, stop from this thought that you can buy the Holy Spirit, change your mind, because you're going to come under God's punishment. You keep teaching this, it's against what he has said, and he'll just take you out. But remember what we studied in Acts chapter 5? They saw this happen. They saw the destruction of believers, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied. They didn't even get a chance to be told. And they died. Same thing could happen here to Simon, the sorcerer. Repent, 22, repent therefore of this thy wickedness, (coughs) and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. I love this, by the way, because it's very detailed about what needs to be forgiven. It's not he needs to be brought into a good relationship with God. It's not that he's separated from God and now maybe, look up here for a moment, maybe God will forgive him if he believes on Jesus Christ. Is there any case in the New Testament where we see that? Where a person believes and God withholds salvation from them? No, perish the thought. You believe, you receive immediately. Immediately. 
So what's Simon's problem here? Coveting the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why Peter says perhaps is because Ananias and Sapphira, they they died. Maybe the same thing will happen to Simon the sorcerer. Peter doesn't know, but he says, get right with God. For I perceive, 23, that thou art in the gall of bitterness. Another great study here. I cannot believe that all the time has gone by already. We're very close to the end here. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness. What was, how did this covetousness spring up in Simon the sorcerer? He was bitter. He was jealous about the power that the apostles had over his people, the Samaritans, over the ones that were bewitched by him. Someone comes in and they have that power now. He was bitter about it. And so he tried to, you know, kindly ask for purchase of this power, and he received a scathing rebuke. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, verse 23, and in the bond of iniquity, the bond of lawlessness. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things, what were these things? Uh, your money perish with you? That's not a welcoming statement. Welcome to Calvary, your money perish with you. We don't start like that. That's a bad thing. He doesn't want that to happen to him. He doesn't want this spring of bitterness to continue. He says, Pray ye for the Lord, uh, pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of, Sam- of the Samaritans. Evidently, whatever happened after this with Simon the sorcerer is not for you and I to know. What is to be known is that a believer can fall into serious sin and suffer consequences that end their life here. But it has nothing to do with their eternal life. Nothing. There is no spurious faith in this passage. They will tell you that there is. They will tell you that there is. You know why they do that? Because it gives them power over you. I don't want power over your life. Peter didn't want that power either. He said, Simon the sorcerer, you get right with God. You figure it out. And Simon the sorcerer says, pray for me. And I believe Peter prayed for him. And what happened to him is not of concern. The highlight of this story is you can't tell God how to do things and get away with it, even as a believer. There's a ton of people that really talk to God disrespectfully. They tell God to do things. Happens in a lot of these worship bands. And it makes the cringe is so intense. It is so intense. These people, they throw up their hands and think that they can buy God's gift of the Holy Spirit. I can offer you the gift of the Holy Spirit right now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Isn't that a nice thing? We don't have to get all worked up here today so that God can say, all right, the heart rate's up. Go get them. Come on, folks. That's magic trick stuff. That's not Bible. And we should mark it and avoid it. Amen? I want you to look at this last thing here. Ah, I don't even have time to go to Matthew 7, so I'll go to the, the subtext of this here. Hebrews chapter 10, please. If you'll look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll do Matthew 7 another day. Trent's probably chuckling. Trent's probably going, you know what? You could just make a part five. (laughs) I could, but then it wouldn't be an even number and all that stuff. So (laughs) I will definitely teach on Matthew 7. It's a great text, but I I don't want to go through it for the sake of saying we got through it. But it's a very good text about the false prophets there and so on and so forth. But um, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Uh, this is another major passage of spurious faith, but my, my point is not to really study that this morning, but to use this as a proof text for what it is, that if believers don't change their mind about certain sin and the way that they perceive things and it, it threatens them from finishing well, they will face severe consequences here on earth. And it's a a very dangerous thing to finish poorly as a Christian. You start off on fire for God. 
you understand, you're excited about things, but then you let sin back into your life. You have this bitterness that springs up, whereby defiling many, Hebrews 12 tells us that. And it threatens your ability, two things, for you to be rewarded by God and to be counted as a person who was faithful. Not that you had faith, but that you were faithful. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. People that demonstrated their faith. Not only does it put you at risk for that, but it puts you at risk of trying, you you mischaracterize God by living in sin. You make it seem like that's okay. It's not. And that's what communion is all about. Remember what Jesus paid for your sin. And then stop the sin. 26. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. For if we sin willfully, and I would like to contest that every single sin that we do is willful. I don't wake up one day and go, oh, didn't mean to do that. Driving down the road, somebody cuts me off and I, and I have an inappropriate thought. Ah, oh, that unwillful sin. Yep, got me again. Come on, folks. Let's get with it. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. What is the received knowledge of the truth? There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What Jesus did on the cross is paid for all of our sin. How dare we then go on sinning if it's all been paid? And that's what he means by there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That doesn't mean that, oh, well, now as a habitual sinner, there's no more sacrifice for you. No. That payment was applied once. But, but, this is what is waiting for the person who continues on in sin. Look what it says. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. What does this mean? If the writer of Hebrews is talking to believers, the only time that they will stand in front of fire that devours the adversaries is at the great or at the judgment seat of Christ. And what will be tried by fire? The believer? The works. So they will stand before God and there will be severe merciless judgment on their works. Their faith in Christ will not save them from that judgment. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. The person who was condemned in the Old Testament time, they died. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. How dare we as believers think it's okay to continue on in our sin? You will not lose your eternal life, but you will lose reward and you will have judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. How do we get to this conclusion? Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's the same God that opened up the earth and devoured the sons of Korah in the wilderness. Because they didn't believe, listen to me now, because they did not believe, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The entire generation, God says their carcasses died. God takes sin seriously. It cost his son his life. But, but, he also justifies fully the person who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't matter if you get to the point where you only sin a little bit. One sin is a wretched thing in the eyes of God. We need a full payment. And that's what Jesus offered. This passage is not to unbelievers. This is to believers that think, it's okay. I'm going to go back into my old ways. I'm going to just continue to sin. There's no real problem here. All my sin is paid for. You're right. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But there will be a judgment in which you will wish you had given him more. Are you with me this morning? This has nothing to do with spurious faith. This has to do with a wasted life. And it's because believers live in this sinful and wicked way where there's no change in their life, where they're not fully constrained by the love of Christ to go share the gospel, where they don't have any evidence of what they've believed. That's how these heretical teachings come up. They try to change the gospel. Let God be God and man be man. 
I'm going to stand before Jesus, not before you. So the things that I do in this body, I make those choices based on how I will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And if every believer thought and believed that, we wouldn't have a big problem in the church today. We've got a big problem because people love their sin. Even though they're saved by grace, they love their sin. And you have to recognize the damage that that does to the gospel, the damage that it does to God, and he will not tolerate it. 30, for we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How do we finish well then? How do we go on into Christian maturity? 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Suffer for the Lord. Look for it, expect it, and then draw on Him when you go through it. I know what the war is like in this mind. You know it too. It can be ravaging. I spoke to some people in our new members classes. They shared their testimony. And one person described the false teaching that they had heard years ago that they no longer believe, but they talk about it having a scar in their life. It's just something that it, it, it so damaged them that they have to continually remind themselves that I know the truth now, but great damage can be done from false teaching. We all battle with things that are not flesh and blood. Spiritual wickedness in high places. How do we prevent being overcome by those things? You put on the armor of God. You become a person of prayer. I, Gary was just in my office before we started service. And he had told me about Jay and I had knew about that. And we talked and, and you know, obviously, you know, concerned. He's our brother in Christ. But then we prayed and were satisfied that we could pray. Believing that God's will would be done. And I asked for strength that we would be willing to obey that. Then you memorize his word. You know it inside and out. And you be a man of action. You do what you learn. We are not, look at 39, uh, 38. The just shall live by faith. We go on as justified with our faith in Christ. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I will not be pleased with the believer who draws back into their old ways. Has nothing to do with whether they're saved or not. Has everything to do with whether they are obedient and grow into their Christian faith. Their faith is still saving faith. Why? Because the object of their faith is Jesus Christ. Let's close our Bibles and look up here for a moment. I pray this has been a blessing to you. That's one of my favorite passages in Acts about Simon the sorcerer because I think it very adequately describes the problem that he faced. It had nothing to do with whether he was saved or not. The man was saved, praise the Lord, but he had a problem with the power of the Holy Spirit and he thought he could buy something like he could buy a magic trick set or something. And there were serious consequences that came with that and Peter made that as an example but I believe Simon the sorcerer is in heaven, and let's just drop the sorcerer, amen? I like to say he's not Simon the sorcerer, he's Simon the saved. Just like I'll be Jesse the saved, and so will you, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. I really pray that this series has blessed you. Those of you who knew these things, but maybe you didn't know how to articulate them or the specifics, I pray that you'll consume it regularly so you can stay fresh on these things. And I, as your pastor, my responsibility is to lead you as the Holy Spirit leads all of us, it's my job to bring these things up every now and again as a reminder. Because this false teaching, it's going to change. It's changed from what it was in the 1500s. It's changed in the past 10 years. I used to go to a homeschooling convention and I talked to a guy from the Master's Seminary, which is where John MacArthur's School of Thought is. And I have, I, the things that he would have said at that time are different today. Because this new idea, everybody's got a new twist and flavor on things. And you need to be aware of that. And the best way to be aware of it is to know the truth. That'll keep you sensitive to any error. 
You know what this says. When you hear something opposite, you go, what? Whoa, whoa. That's not right. Something's not right with that. But maybe you're here today and you, you thought you had to continue to perform in order to be saved. You thought, I've got to continue to do, or if I have a wrong attitude, then that proves I'm not really saved yet. Folks, I have the greatest news for you that you'll ever hear. That the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ's finished work for you on the cross, you receive right in that moment the free gift of everlasting life. And it's called everlasting life because that's how long it lasts, period. It's eternal life. You have it now. If this hand represents you and me, I'll let my wallet represent sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible has says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, he loves us very much, but he hates our sin because our sin separates us from him. Why? Because God's perfect, righteous, and holy, and there can be no presence of sin in heaven. People say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm very good. I'm almost perfect. Well, that's not perfect. No sin will be able to get into heaven. And this sin, it condemns us. If we were to die today without an adequate, sufficient payment for our sin, we would be separated from from God for all eternity. Folks, I say this to wake you up. There are people who will die today and experience hell for the rest of eternity. And that's a terrible thing. Let it not be because we did not share the gospel. People need a payment for their sin. And so, so many things will come in and say, good works, ascend to higher knowledge, give money, live a good life. These things will pay for your sin. No. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Somebody's got to die for this sin. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man. And what He did is because He loved you, He died on that cross 2,000 years ago, took that sin which condemned us, became that sin for us. He cried out before He gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. What was finished? This has been paid. He was buried and then He rose again three days later. And He said to Nicodemus in the dead of night, for God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever, that whosoever, that whosoever, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life what must you do to be saved believe on the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved first john 5 13 tells the people who have believed you can know that you have eternal life you have it in possession of it right now and you'll never lose it you did nothing to earn it you do nothing to keep it we're saved by God's grace, and we are kept saved for all of eternity by that shed blood of Jesus. I leave you with this thought. Jesus' resurrected body, it always makes a very impactful impression upon me that the scars in his hands and his feet still remain. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it is forever a testimony of the price he paid. So I I pray that you're encouraged. For those of you who have yet to believe on Jesus Christ, do so right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, please? As I ask for this quiet moment, if there's anybody here in the congregation today that say, Pastor, I understand I'm going to heaven now. I thought it was something I have to do or say or not do or my good works that would save me but i understand now that what jesus did on the cross paid for all my sins and this morning i put my faith in him would you pray for me i would love to pray for you would you just slip your hand up and let me know raising your hand doesn't save you it just signifies to me that you've trusted christ today anyone before we close heads are bowed and eyes are still closed Reformed theology, Calvinism, lordship, salvation, they've all twisted what God has said very clearly in his word. I pray that you would not give them the ammo that they need by living a wicked and sinful life. Dwell on what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
be motivated, constrained by that love that was demonstrated to you by Jesus. And go and sin no more. Not because by not sinning you'll be more saved, but don't you want to be used by God? Don't you want to be a testimony of His grace? Live a righteous life. And beware of those false teachers and false prophets who come in privily seeking to make a meal out of you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with me, your patience with all of your people. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is the only way that we can stand fully clean before you. And thank you that our the gift that was given to us is eternal life. Lord, we pray that you come soon. We're excited with Rosh Hashanah coming up this weekend and Yom Kippur the next weekend. I pray, Lord, that if this is the time, that we'd be a part of that number. We're so looking forward to it. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.